All right, truth. This is the third time that I've tried starting this. The first time was I said, "Here we are, Beatitude number six. And then I forgot which one it was. And then the second time I tried to start this, I was like, "Here we are at bad, bad, baditude. Yes, baditude number six. It's like Jesus went punk. So let's try this for a third time. Here we are at beatitude number six, which is, and I'm almost blanking on it again. There we go. Blessed are the pure of heart." For they shall see God, and just to for funsies, I guess I counted up and I thought there were seven beatitudes. Shows what I know, good Christian. There are actually eight. Nope, nine. And if I wanted to dig into it, I actually had to stop myself from going into Hebrew numerology to see if there's any kind of specifics as to why did God give nine beatitudes? Why not seven? Seven seems like it would be a perfect number. There are the seven churches, the seven days of the week. Seven, seven, seven is a lucky number and a slot machine. But yet I digress. All right, so I also want to start this with a little bit of a confession. I am rambling, as you can tell, but it's because I find this project somewhat self-defeating. I really want to produce content. My mind moves a million miles a minute. I love thinking and coming to a sense of understanding. Is a genuine joy for me, and so what I often want to do is I want to share the things I feel compelled, eager, giddy sometimes. That sounded creepy to to share the things that I'm thinking, especially when it comes to scripture. And it dawned on me, or maybe even crystallized in my head, however you want to phrase it. A little while ago, that what I really do want to do is share what I'm coming to understand about the Word of God, and that does involve abstract theology. But as best I can, I want to share how it is that I perceive God to be showing me how to understand His Word in a way that doesn't force application. But in a way that makes application, in and of itself, naturally apparent, if one simply has but eyes to see, and a lot of that I think comes from actually dealing with the text. I'm probably going to do another little episode on this later, but I was listening to a sermon message today. And what really, really crystallized for me, I wanted to say something snarky like, "Oh, how better to preach the word than to preach the theology that we think the word is a gateway to." And what I mean by that is, we we come to scripture with really good, sound doctrine, but then we treat scripture almost so flippantly as if it is a proof text that its primary purpose is to be a proof text for the doctrine, and it's not. The primary purpose of Scripture is a direct communication with God, who wrote it a certain way, according to certain genre and style, with its various authors delivered. Even that struck me. The, the message today was through Ephesians, and Ephesians was delivered as a holistic letter to the Ephesians, the the members of the Christian community in the city of Ephesus, many of whom may have had the Old Testament if they were Jews, many of whom did not. They were Gentiles, many of whom had not read all of Paul's other letters, 
So many of whom had no concept of doing the cross-reference and the, oh, this one little word here does the Christian word search to the word over there, and hey, word for word, and hey, look, theology. No. Read the letter to the Ephesians. What does the letter in and of itself say? Read it from start to finish, because we kind of have to, but in the process of doing that, keep in mind the entire flow and interconnectedness of Paul's entire argument through the letter. Never lose sight of that. And that's the approach that I've been trying to bring to the Beatitudes. Because as this narrative is related, as this history is related by Matthew, he's composed it in such a way that he's actually showing it. Yeah, it's like watching a movie. Jesus is on the side of this mountain with these people. These people who have brought their sick to him, people who were afflicted with various infirmities, mental, physical, and along with that, the economic strife, the political sidelining, the social sidelining that comes with all of this. Their lives kind of suck for many of them. And they're coming to Jesus to make their lives better. We've hit on this a ton in a lot of the previous episodes. They want to live a good life, as it were. They want to be healed, and maybe a lot of them want to be healed so they can be industrious and provide for their family. They are sick of being in pain. They're sick of helping somebody else because it's an economic drain. There's always that phrase, nobody cares for the caregiver. And so it's like a, it's, I remember watching my mom, sort of. I lived in Dallas and she lived in San Antonio, but I remember watching my mom care for my dad when he was, you know, dying of cancer. And it sucked. My mom needed just as much care and support as my dad did. It is hard. And we want Jesus, we want God to fix this. So these are the people that Jesus is talking to, to whom Jesus is talking. Let's use a prepositional phrase there, buddy. And he comes out kind of swinging, not giving them exactly what they want. And as we go back through the Beatitudes, what Jesus is doing is he's really culminating to what the true issue is. Oh, blessed are the poor. Yes, I am poor. Yeah, blessed are the poor in spirit. Oh. Blessed are those who mourn. Yeah, I mourn. God loves me. For they shall be cut. Wait, hold. This shall be comfort, the strength that Nina, I, it's actually, I should rejoice in the fact. I should rejoice in my mournful state. But wait, I haven't read James's letter. I should rejoice in my mournful state because in that mournful state, I can actually experience the comfort of God. Comfort, which is by definition and etymology, strength to get through what is causing me grief. And I will actually come out stronger on the other end. I think somebody wrote a letter to Rome. Talking about that kind of stuff, maybe. I don't know, I might have read it, I might not have, I'm in Ephesus. And then Jesus keeps building and he's priming his audience to redirect their perspective away from these other ailments. These ailments which are real and legit, by the way, but to the true issues. And he finally hits his crescendo, his punctuation point in Beatitude number 6. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. As I was preparing for this, I thought about Psalm 22, which is what Jesus quotes from the cross. And it starts off, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I can just imagine so many people coming to this hillside 
with their various affirmities and afflictions, their situations and circumstances, they're probably internally screaming that out loud, or they're basically either possibly just sitting there in dejection, thinking that God's already forsaken them. And here they have a last-ditch hope of either some alternative to God. They maybe think that Jesus is some kind of traveling holy man, a Buddha that they've never heard of. Not that they know what Buddha is. Or maybe God's actually heard my prayers. But he starts to teach them instead of heal them. And he starts to redirect their perspective in their hearts instead of healing their legs and fixing their, you know, broken psyches. And so you can imagine that these people, again, are saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then let's think about who is it that God forsakes? Or God forsakes sinners. Take this over to Exodus. In Exodus 32, we have the golden calf. God's kind of pissed about that. Tells Moses to go down and stop them. And then later on, God says to Moses that he will uh, send them to the promised land. So uh, let's directly quote it. I actually have the Bible right here in front of me open to this passage. And the Lord said to Moses in Exodus 33, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you... Not I, said God, but you, Moses, nice distancing there, have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I'll send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and all the Etherites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. Now, he does say, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So God's basically saying, it's actually even a mercy to, to you that I am leaving you to yourself. I'll give you what I promised, but if I stay with you, I will destroy you. So I am going to just leave you to come what may. I'll fulfill my promise and give you the land, but other than that, I'm out. Hmm. And what kind of a people has done this? What kind of a people are defined as sinners? Well, it's the people who have forsaken God. Go back to Exodus 32. The whole thing is probably worth reading. But when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so this is the culmination of the people of Israel who have been bitching and moaning this whole time that they've been in the wilderness. Not trusting God. Calling him to account. You could say testing him. But being ungrateful. Now, to be fair... I've never lived in a desert, let alone wandered around one like a nomad in a tent. But God did provide for their needs. And at almost every turn, they wanted to go back to Egypt. They've shown their lack of faith and their abandonment of God, a God who's proven himself to them, who has given, is about to give them his basic law by which to live, 
But they say, God isn't doing enough for the logistics of my life. I live in the desert. I don't have what I think is enough food. I got dust in my sandals. It's friggin' hot. It sucks. Why am I following this God? No, I'm gonna just I'm gonna make these other gods that'll be a little bit better. And I know I'm kind of deluding myself. You know, the religion thing is kind of just what we do. So we're gonna live in this happy fantasy. And it's almost interesting. I know that these gods aren't actually gonna support me, but that's okay because I don't really expect them to anyway. And that's kind of how these quid pro quo religions work. If the God doesn't help me, it's not that the God isn't there. I just didn't do enough or maybe they just don't feel like it. That's okay because none of them promise to be good anyway. So there's what I mean about practicality. How many of us in our own lives, we live in a certain kind of functional atheism? I know I have. How many of these people on the hillside, they're given their legitimate problems their legitimate issues, the ways in which life is genuinely hard. How many of them live in a functional atheism? Maybe that's a nice awkward segue. What I want to get into is this also reminds me of the man lowered through the roof earlier in Matthew. I believe it's Matthew uh, 5. Wow. Maybe Matthew 5. You can probably hear my pages. But it's definitely in Mark 2. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Again, preaching. He's teaching. This is his entire purpose. This is why he's here. Get people to understand who God is. And therefore whom they should be. Who they should be. Don't need a whom there. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And then when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, faith just means trust. I do say just, I don't mean to belittle it, but that's actually what the word means. Faith means trust, and that doesn't belittle or take away from anything, because trust is hard. Not sure if I hit this with you, I've hit it with my friends, but trust is hard. So when Jesus saw that these people trusted him, trusted him to do what? To heal their friend. Dude can't walk. Four of them carried him on a mat, climbed up on a roof, hauled his crippled butt onto said roof, and then by the strength of their biceps, however strong that is, Lowered him down into this house where Jesus be teaching, by the way, not healing. And in full faith and, and trust, Jesus, I trust that you will make my friend well. And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Screech on the record. What the heck? Huh? His legs don't work, bro. Would you be saying his sins are forgiven? Hmm. I wonder if any of them were thinking that. I really don't want to put thoughts in their heads. But that may have crossed some of their minds. Like, Jesus, I didn't come for that. I'd go to the temple and offer sacrifice for that. I'm also good anyway. I haven't done nothing to nobody. He hadn't done nothing to nobody. He'd been sitting there. What he gonna do? Well, 
does he belittle you as you carry him? Is he kind of like the Balaam to your donkey as he takes you? Does he lie? Maybe he doesn't say a whole lot, but he's probably lusting after every person that walks around. Is he angry? Is he bitter? Is he envious? Does he make crude comments? Is he abusive emotionally? Would he be abusive if he could be physically? None of that gets better if Jesus heals his legs. These people come to Jesus. They want the hand of God. And Jesus says, you want the hand of God? You want to stop crying out, my God, my God? And it's there. It's L. It is strong one. In Psalm 22. You want to stop crying out, oh, strong one, strong one? Why have you forsaken me? Well, how about you be the kind of person that God wouldn't forsake? And that takes us to Psalm 15. Again, you can probably hear my pages. I had it pulled up on my computer. But my computer turned itself off and went to sleep. That's Job. That's Psalm 22. You fell. To so Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who shall live with In other words, who shall see you face to face? In communion. Well, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, who does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eye a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. And you don't need functional legs to be that kind of man. You don't need money to be that kind of man. And it's only this kind of man, person, or the one who aspires to be that, who can rely on the power, the admonition, the teaching, the reproof of the Lord to sanctify him, to teach him, to 